horror culture on Shepherd the Show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And it's original versus remake time again. Why did I sound like I was uh, a butcher at a car boot sale just now? Again. No, not that. I mean, that's just my wonderful vocals. Um, I mean, like the... Uh, no, 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 no. Go and get your bags of chicken for a pound. Come and get your bags of chicken for a pound. <laughs> I said you buy one, you get one for it. I said you buy one, oh, you get yes, one for it. Oh, yes, go on over here for Mavis. Oh, yeah, here you go. Oh. Anyway. So we're back for Original vs. Remake. Uh, a bit of an obscure one this month. A smidge. Yeah, I think smidge, so. But, I mean, it didn't stop you lot in the polls for getting it wrong. Um, no. We're here talking about I Saw What You Did. Not last summer. No. Um, but, yes, I saw what you did. Uh, start with the poll results. Clearly, you guys don't enjoy fun. Uh, so you voted for the remake, which won 75% and 25% original. Is the remake more accessible? No. Is, I don't, I don't. Not unless they watch a terrible version Do we watched on YouTube. people just love Shawnee Smith? Uh, maybe. They see Shawnee Smith. But then you would have John Crawford in. Yeah, maybe people prefer Shawnee Smith to Joan oh, Crawford. Oh, gracious. Um, but yes, those are the results. And for our socials catch-up, we haven't got a lot this month. Uh, Cole.McKenzie on Instagram, uh, he, talking about the Lost Boys sequel, says he loves all of the Lost Boys films. He's a true fan. Uh, just to see Fabian playing Edgar Frog on screen, it's enough for him. Uh, but the first one is the greatest, no questions. Uh, Jake on Sunset and Instagram also enjoyed the Lost Boys sequels. Because we put a thing out and said, did anybody actually enjoy these? And we had two people. No. <laughs> uh, we had a few congratulations for our two-year anniversary. Yeah, because we've been doing this shit for two years now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Hi, I Hope You Suffer podcast uh, revealed their three-year anniversary... It's actually four days after ours, so oh, happy three-year anniversary. Happy three-year anniversary. May result in a crossover episode next year. Maybe. Who knows? Uh, and Rick on Facebook always comes through every month. You, you always know he's got something to say. Uh, in response to Ninja Terminator being announced, he said Richard Harrison made quite a few shit ninja movies. Ninja the Protector, where Harrison played a cop, is a standout and contains a police station scene where there's an anti-crime poster... Uh, in the background, with a girl tied up saying it could happen to you. Lock up and keep criminals out. There we go. <laughs> so that's good. Ninja the Protector might be coming your way soon from us. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you've got anything to say about I saw what you did, or just want to say anything at all, then it's Horacle Trash over on Facebook and Instagram, and Horacle Trash on Twitter. So getting into this month's original versus remake films... I Saw What You Did, released in 1965, directed by William Castle, uh, who we did an entire episode on. We'll go back on to it. We did. Uh, didn't, we did say a lot about this, because we hadn't seen this at the time. No. Um, but for anyone who hasn't listened to that episode, William Castle is the iconic director uh, behind the likes of 13 Ghosts, House on Haunted Hill, Straight Jacket, The Tingler, 13 Frightened Girls, etc, etc. Homicidal. Yeah. Yes, uh, we love William Castle. Mm-hmm. We loved his films. I uh, really enjoyed the podcast. This is quite late for him, isn't yeah. it? 65? Yeah, this is after his big films. Fairly late. Um, yeah, yeah, it's alright. Uh, budget is unknown. Bridget. But it made uh, $1 million worldwide. Oh, um, that's not great. No. No. What about 1965? Who knows? No, um, I don't think that's great. Joan Crawford was approached for this film. Oh, yeah, Joan Crawford's in this for nine minutes. Um, one month after she left Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte uh, due to an ailment that prevented her from working, which is believed to have actually been sick of working with her arch enemy, Betty Davis. Yes. <laughs> Therefore, William Castle requested that Crawford's doctor sign a statement uh, attesting that she was completely well before giving her the role. Yeah, yeah. Um, this big story from Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte is that she thought that everyone was on Betty Davis's side. Yeah. And left. We may have a bit more to say about this next month. That's what I was thinking. I don't want to give too much away. 
Drone Crawford was paid $50,000 for four days' work. Her total screen time amounts to just nine minutes, uh, and she still receives top billing. And she's on the poster as well. Yeah. This is... Uh, see, I wouldn't consider this film exploitation. No. Because Joan Crawford's character is completely pointless. Yeah. Joan Crawford being in the film is completely pointless. Well, it's kind of like reverse... Not reverse, but opposite has exploitation. Whatever the term is for an old man, rather than uh, an old woman. Oh, well, it wouldn't, that wouldn't. That wouldn't exist, would it? Why would that exist? Exactly, exactly. Fucking hell. Uh, this was Joan Crawford's last appearance in an American film. Uh, after this, she made only two more films, both of which were filmed entirely in the UK. Uh, and unlike most of Can you her, name one of her films? I cannot. I cannot. Um, Is it Trog? It's Trog. Oh, my God. I'm desperate to have Trog as a uh, podcast film. <laughs> Absolutely desperate. But I can't find it anywhere. Uh, unlike most of her films, this one does not feature any product placement for Pepsi-Cola. Which is surprising. Yeah, because okay. Straight Jacket had the most obvious Yeah, one. I think this one would be less obvious. I mean, the girls could just be drinking Pepsi <laughs> Cola. That would be quite easy, really. <laughs> and uh, also, for our last Joan Crawford fact, uh, her role was originally offered to Grayson Hall, who would later join the cast of the enormous, uh, enormously popular supernatural daytime soap opera, Dark Shadows, as Dr. Julia Hoffman. Who tries to cure uh, Barnabas Collins of being a vampire? Oh, okay. That was um, remade with Johnny Depp. Dark Shadows sounds amazing. Yeah. Uh, during its original theatrical release, some theatres installed seat belts so you couldn't be shocked out of your seat. I... Yes, because it's William Castle, so there had to be a gimmick. Yes, there was, but I don't think that one was really necessary. <laughs> I don't think anyone's getting shocked out of their seat. But it wasn't the only gimmick. Um, as well as this, he ordered to put a plastic phone near each theatre entrance where audiences, mostly youngsters, were asked to dial a number supposed to reach a message saying, I know, I saw what you did and I know who you are. But the phone lines were rapidly jammed and, and phone companies all over the country backfired Castle, who eventually cancelled the whole operation. <laughs> I mean, that gimmick makes sense. I don't know about the seatbelts one. <laughs> I don't think the seatbelt one makes sense. Uh, body count free. That's, yeah, not, not a lot of deaths. Yeah, not... I'm, I'm, I wouldn't really consider it a horror film. It becomes a horror film. It's yeah. circumstantial horror film. What I, liked. I don't know if that's an actual term, but that's what I've started to call it anyway. Well, that's, you can write the book on circumstantial horror. Like Predator, you know, how that... If people... In the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, from dusk till dawn, Overlord, uh, Psycho. You know yeah. films where people, where it's not played out to be a horror film. People end up in places, and it becomes a horror film. Like these were just girls playing pranks, and then yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Uh, so I saw what you did, nineteen eighty eight, directed by Fred Walton, uh, another previous podcast star who directed When a Stranger Calls, Hadley's Rebellion, April Fool's Day, uh, The Rosary Murders, Trapped, and lots more. Unknown budget, and it's a TV movie, so there's no worldwide gross. And also, there's no trivia. Oh, I've I got a little trivia. Oh, okay. So, um, Kim Newman credits this film with the start of the Dark Castle Entertainment remakes. Really? Yeah. So he considers this the first film or TV movie that gave the idea to do these oh, mainly William the idea, Castle yeah. remakes. Um, it was second in its time slot when it was shown on American TV, mm -hmm. uh, losing out only to uh, Rambo 2. <laughs> okay. um, which I'm assuming was a big premiere at the time to be fair and it also won the Emmy for best TV movie cinematography or TV movie or miniseries cinematography yeah I'll go so more, a little trivia I'll go more in depth about that uh, when we get to that section but I'll say now I'm not mad at that win I think 
for a TV movie, the cinematography was great. It looks fine. Um, but yeah. So, 1965. 1965. I've, I've got some notes before the trivia, because I had the same trivia copied as you. Um, <laughs> do you want to read the first bit, and then we'll go, in, we'll go back. We'll go back. What? So start reading it, and I'll stop here, and we'll go back to the little notes I have. Okay. Which I'm sure you probably have the same. So I've got a few notes. So the film starts off like a teen movie. Oh, okay. Well, that's, yeah, that's basically. Oh, okay. Cinema, the cinematography is great in this opening scene where we, we basically see Libby and Kit side by side through someone's eyes. I mean, you'd think that would be setting it up for, a, you know, a proper horror film. But the music... <laughs> Yeah, it was like a teen movie. So the teen movies at the time were very much like Gidgets or the, you know, the beach movies yeah. where teens in bikinis were dancing all night long. Um, very reminiscent of the telephone song from Bye Bye Birdie. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of that yeah, one? Yeah, um, I thought it was very reminiscent of that. The girls are just chatting shit on the phone to each other. Um, each of the girls is one eye yeah. within the eye that's been... It's, it's quite it cool. Great. It's cool. It's very Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say that throughout this. It, it's This film is a Hitchcock rip-off. Well, yeah. I mean, again, for anyone who hasn't listened to the William Castle episode, William Castle would often borrow from Hitchcock. Well, yeah, because in some ways, Hitchcock borrowed from William Castle as well, particularly yeah. later on uh, when he was probably a little more over the top um so i would say borrowing from hitchcock rather than stealing from hitchcock um but semantics there's a certain shower scene yeah there is well (laughs) that uh, and let's face it homicidal was the the psycho ripoff so uh, i think william castle's like well i can't put a shower scene in here because it'd be too obvious let's wait a couple of films and we'll uh, we'll shove it in i saw you did (laughs) So that's how we start the film. Very much like a teen movie. Yeah. Um, when teenage friends Libby Mannering, Andy Garrett, and Kit Austin, played by Sarah Lane, are home alone with Libby's youngest sister Tess, played by Cheryl Locke, they amuse themselves by randomly dialing telephone numbers, asking prank questions. Um, so this goes on for quite a while. In yeah. the film. Before this, we get... The interactions... So, before this, we get the interactions between the family at the beginning of the film. And, again, it feels like a sitcom. Yeah. It feels like Bewitched. Um, even the music is very... Yeah, it is sitcom music. You know, the two girls, Libby and Tess, are bickering. She calls her a little idiot... Because they're a big mouth. Um, the dog sneezes in a comical way as well. It's very weird. Well, Tessa's running around outside like a fucking idiot with a thermometer in her mouth. And it's all just to get her temperature. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not going to work if you're running around. And, you know, she te- checks that she's fine. And she's like, see, I'm a normal person. And Tessa's like, well, that's your opinion. And Tessa, <laughs> fucking Libby is such a bitch. <laughs> But it's, it's, it's really weird because the film's not advertised in absolutely any way no. to lure you into a false sense of security. You know, you've got Joan Crawford's face screaming on the poster, <laughs> which is completely pointless because that's certainly not taken from the film. Um, so I, I don't understand what's going on here. So I've got no idea what's going on here with the... Co- so we have Kit come over. Um, she's... Reading queer, I thought, from the start. <laughs> thought she may have had a little crush on Libby. Um, but she's come over for dinner or whatever, and the babysitter has come down with the flu or something. She's not very well. Yeah. So they, the parents are like, oh, should we go, should we not? Uh, they decide to leave, so they leave Libby, Kit and Tess home alone for the evening. Um, that's when they decide to start playing some pranks. Well, Kit has no idea what a goat is. We find no. out. No. They go into the wooded area and they've got, like, a goat and a horse. And she's like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> We've never seen a fucking goat before. And then, uh, to start the pranks thing, Tess tricks Kit into thinking she has a phone call from a boy. She's like, maybe it's Gary. 
And uh, <clears throat> Libby's like, nobody called. It's her idiot notion of a joke. Like, oh my God, are you just going to kill her and bury the body somewhere? You fucking hate your sister. <laughs> I don't know if Gary called. I'm surprised she well, answered. I mean, it's, it's certainly not this Gary. So then we start getting the calls... And there's, there's a lot of them. And the, we, yeah. we cut to a lot of people as well. I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, but it's mainly stuff like... Um, what's the one, two... So, yeah, there's random random men's wives, uh, where they pretend that they're the bits on the side. Tess calls someone to say uh, that her name is Nancy, and she's been left at a theatre on Elm Street, which is weird. Like, do you think there's some inspiration there from random phone calling... That's all you did. Potentially. Uh, Libby calls John Hamburger and asks him for pickles and onions. And he says, get lost, nuisance burger. You have a nuisance burger uh, means. But yeah, the, the, it's just loads of random, random shit. Yeah, so they eventually place a call to Steve Marrick, played by John Ireland. And he's a man who's just murdered his wife, Judith, in played by Joyce Meadows. And disposed of her body in the woods. She tells him she saw what he did, and she knows who he is. Believing he has been found out, Marek wants to track down the caller in order to silence her. Yeah. So Steve kills his wife in a confusing way, <laughs> because he's in the shower. So they, they kind of, they place a call to this Steve Marek. So it's not, it's not just a coincidence, it's a coincidence twice. Um, but their initial call is pre- pretending to be having an affair or whatever with this Steve. But he's in the shower. And his wife's there. She's like, Steve, Steve, Steve. And, you know, she eventually goes in to the bathroom. It's a, it's a mess. Yeah. There's a knife sticking into a piece of wood for some reason. We're not really sure no. why he's done this. Made a mess of the bathroom. Because it is... It's like a proper mess. It's not just, oh, that messy prick. It's like a proper, he's destroyed the bathroom. She grabs the knife, but just to hold it. She's not, <laughs> she's not threatening to stab him in the shower. She goes to the shower. It's like, Steve, Steve, and whatnot. He drags her in, takes the knife and stabs her. So she's fully dressed in the shower. It's all very psycho. We get, you know, yeah. the camera on the feet with the... Uh, this is a black and white film, so we get the chocolate sauce, blood going down the drain and all that business. And then he throws her through the glass of the shower. You know, it's all right. It's 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 just ripped off from Hitchcock, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Um. So then he get then they call again, don't they? Yeah. Um, because, uh, what's her name? Tess drops. <laughs> Drop some peanut butter and jelly on the page with his number on. So they're using the phone book very, um, for anyone who don't remember, there used to be a massive book with everyone's telephone numbers in <laughs> Which is really weird to think of now. Yeah. Considering now we're so big on protecting our identities uh-huh. and such. That uh, people knew your address and your phone number just by looking in this massive book. Um... So she dropped this peanut butter and jelly on the page. So that's when they went back to his number because they were quite intrigued. And they say, we know what you did. And he's confused by it, but also a bit fuming. Um, Listening to his voice, they describe him as, what a swinger. (laughs) He definitely wants a date. And also a sex maniac, <laughs> but in a positive way. Uh, so the girls are quite intrigued yeah. by his voice. Um, they want to get a date for, uh, what's what's her name? Not Kit, the other one. Libby. Libby. Uh, Libby wants a bit of a date with him. <laughs> Just by his... This is so weird. Did teenagers actually act like this in the 60s? Is this a real thing? I mean, I suppose this is the equivalent to meeting on a chat room and being like, oh, what a swinger. <laughs> <laughs> we then have Marek's neighbour, Amy, played by Joan Crawford, 
who is in love with him for some explicable reason <laughs> because he's shown absolutely no evidence to for anyone to love him, uh, especially someone <laughs> from afar who suddenly declares their love. And she has been trying to woo him away from his wife. Um, Amy. Yeah, so she shows up. What's the point? She shows up, uh, walks into his house, makes her own way in. She, she's just hungry for cock, ain't she? Yeah, but um, his in particular. Oh, yeah, yeah, she definitely wants his. Um, she goes into his house and uh, informs him. <laughs> she's happy that Judith isn't there, his wife. Yeah. It's like, you married a childish, empty-headed little tramp. She's basically just there to call people tramps. It's not the yeah, first time she does this. Um, well, no, it is the first time, but it's not the last. She, uh, they have a kiss to a romantic sitcom soundtrack, um, just so she doesn't go into the bathroom. Um, he, he goes off and buries the body and whatnot, but when he comes back, she's like, okay, come in, to his own fucking house, and then I'll like, oh, pour you a nice stiff drink. <laughs> So you get that she's obsessed with him, but he's not particularly interested. But then... But she's the rich one, so it's not even like she's after him for his money. But it's it's kind of hinted that there's already something going on. Because he... One moment he acts like there is, the next he doesn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, intrigued by Marek's voice... I'm thinking he sounds sexy. Libby takes Tess... And a frightened Kit along on a drive to Marek's address. I mean, Kit isn't just frightened. She also thinks that he'll take one look at Libby and send her home. <laughs> yes. So Amy discovers Libby and chases her off. You little tramp! By grabbing, pulling her hair and calling her a little tramp. <laughs> thinking that Libby is Marek's lover. Inadvertently saving Libby, though, from being murdered by Marek, who has seen her and grabbed a knife. So, I suppose there's the point of uh, Amy being in the film, to save Libby. Yeah, they absolutely could have done that without her. (laughs) Now, during all this happening, the mother keeps trying to get through on the phone, but it's busy. It's busy when they're prank calling and then unanswered when they leave the house. And the dad thinks this is okay, which is a bit weird. You know, you think the kids would answer the phone. Um, but to help the film along, he doesn't care. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my favourite part was when Amy says, look, honey, you're too young. <laughs> so, when chasing her out of town, Amy snatches the registration card from the car before Libby drives away and Amy gives it to Marek, telling him to keep it as a souvenir of his last fling. This is after she says, Another empty-headed, childish little tramp. Your taste is sickening. <laughs> Amy tries to blackmail Marek into marrying her, telling him she knows about the murder. But he stabs her to death after we have a drink. <laughs> this death scene is amazing. It is so dramatic. Jamie. Uh, my favourite part was because, you know, Joan Crawford is old school. So you give her a death scene, she's going to give you a death scene. <laughs> so he stabs her in the front uh, whilst they're embracing. And she very slowly sort of descends to the floor, uh, holding on to him. And the hand goes down the chest, <laughs> past the stomach, definitely onto the crotch. <laughs> And then down the leg. She goes, Steve. <laughs> and then dies. And that's Joan Crawford. Dirt. Nine minutes of screen Top time. Top billing. Face there on the poster. <laughs> Top, you know, I love it. I love scream it. before there was Scream. But I think Scream was a deliberate choice. Whereas this is, we couldn't afford Joan Crawford for too long. <laughs> <laughs> we could only afford Joan you Crawford. No, she demanded days. her face to be on that poster. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so with Libby's address and phone number from the car registration, Steve calls to ask if her parents are home. And she gives away all the info, don't she? Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. like, no, nah, they're not here, no. Nah. Might be back till the morning. Come and murder me. Come and murder me. <laughs> he then sets out for the Mannering home. Uh, <laughs> we then get a pointless scene of Tess being missing and being found in the stables <laughs> before she, because she can't sleep. 
Uh, we get this because the film doesn't actually surpass an hour and a half. <laughs> so we need to make up the time for a feature-length film. So Libby's mother, 90 miles away in Santa Barbara with her husband, is frantic. Now she's frantic with worry <clears throat> when no one answers the home phone and has her husband call the police to check the house. A patrolman visits and finds them locked in the stable. They pretend that this is why they couldn't answer the phone all along. They were locked in the stable. Very exciting. Libby, afraid of losing her driving privileges, swears Kit to secrecy over their misadventure. While Kit's father is driving her home, a news report over the car's radio announces that a woman's body has been found in the woods and provides a description of a man who was seen leaving the burial site. Do you have the description of the woman? Um, yes, the body is described as young and attractive. <laughs> Oh, God, that's a cracking corpse. <laughs> that's all we get. The body, uh, a young and attractive woman. Uh, you know, all the young and attractive women in the area are like, oh, my God. <laughs> the news report on the radio then proceeds to give the full name of the eyewitness. <laughs> Even though no one's been arrested in regards to the murder... They decide to give the full name and and the city of residence yeah. to the eyewitness. <laughs> a lot of details are given away in this film. It's like, surely you shouldn't be giving that away this, until this film, someone's been caught. <laughs> it is a data protection nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Steve doesn't actually listen, clearly doesn't listen to no. the uh, radio, TV, uh, radio report. Because he arrives at the Mannering home and questions Libby and Tess about the call. Libby convinces him that it was just a prank. He returns her mother's identification and leaves, but waits outside. Yeah, so Tess just invites him in. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, you're that strange man now so we're Tess, calling. Come yeah, in. Yeah, Tess can't sleep. Um, so she lets the dog out. He's there. And he's like, yeah, come in. I'll get, I'll get her. You can talk to her. <laughs> Try not, don't, please don't murder her. So when Kit calls... She tells Libby that Steve matches the description of the killer about whom she had heard on the radio. Steve overhears this and enters to silence Libby and Tess, but they evade him. Um, This is when I realised that for the whole film there was a constant fog outside the house. Oh, yeah. Yeah, William Castle definitely got a new smoke machine that he wanted to try out. I mean, it's not foggy anywhere else. (laughs) But this house, it's foggy, constantly, outside. Uh, Libby tries to escape but cannot start her parents' car. Steve emerges from the back seat and starts to strangle Libby, but he is shot by a police officer who had come to the Mannering house after Kit revealed the secret to, who, uh, to her father, who phoned the police. Yeah, we then end on Libby and Tess joking about not using the phone for a while. Happy sitcom music and... Uh... What I sh- what I'm sure was Joan Crawford's voice saying, "Sorry, you've reached a disconnected number," yeah. and then we're informed it's the end of the line. Yeah, it's <laughs> weird because it ends like the end of a sitcom episode, <laughs> so it is a bit like, "Oh, lesson learned. I won't be using the phone anytime soon." Like literally moments after a man was shot dead. Yeah, we've had two murders. This has been very much advertised as a horror film, but it plays off like a sitcom. It's so weird, but thoroughly entertaining. Oh, yeah. I, I thought it was great. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, impact on other future horror films? I, I kind of noticed the, um, so. the scene where uh, Steve grabs Libby from the back of the car is very Halloween. Michael Myers and Annie. Oh, I suppose so. And we know John Carpenter was, if I remember right, a William Castle fan, so... Potentially. I suppose it was the kind of films he would have seen when he was younger. Yeah. Um, I mean, the whole phone call thing has been done to death since this. Yeah, it's based on a book. Oh, okay. So it is based on a book. and We're not sure how far back these kind of urban legends yeah. go. You know, be careful who you call on the telephone. Be careful who you answer the phone to. The calls are coming from inside the house. Yeah. You know, they're all sort of based on folk lore and folk myths and legends. And it's, so it's all derived from somewhere. Yeah. 
So it is based on a novel. My thing is, I enjoyed the film, but a lot of it could have been cut out. Yeah, and it's, it's a tonal mess. As, it's, it's, the tones yeah, are all over the place. here, there and everywhere. For me, it would have worked better as an episode of an anthology series. It would have been a great short film. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But for if it was maybe an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, yeah. um, cutting a lot of the, the probably more boring bits out, making it more concise... Uh, maybe focusing on the girls more than the killer. I just, I thought it could have been tidied up. Yeah. But it, overall, it's an enjoyable film. It's late William Castle. Um, it's not as good as his best. No. Uh, by any shot. Uh, speaking of boring bits. Oh my God. 1988, we open with Mr. Sandman playing over random clips of older movies whilst two guys are absolutely fuming about how shit it is. One of the guys tells Adrian, the maker of the montage, that the other guy didn't like it, and he is fuming, so he pours some tea. What is it meant to be? I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming it didn't cost a penny for any of the rights to the films. Um, one of them I recognised as House of Wax. M- Mysteries then, of the Wax Museum, the original Mysteries one. Mysteries of the yeah, Ma- Wax the, the, Museum. The uh, public domain one, yeah. by that point. And then was it Phantom Dracula. Of the Opera? Dracula, that's the one. Um, but I'm not sure what they're meant to Some, be doing. Yeah, some of stock footage, just random yeah. shit. Um, Lisa Harris, a popular high school student, uh, introduced uh, as she's asleep in class... And the teacher says, I have good news. You don't snore, you blow like a whale. Okay. My, my, the way she slept, though, it must have really hurt. Because, like, her neck is, like, all the way back yeah. with no support. Um, she's more interested in her boyfriend, Louie, than getting good grades. It, she's invited to dinner by Kim Fielding, her intelligent classmate who never breaks any rules and has to babysit her sister, Julia, since her father is out of town for the night. Uh, feeling that she has nothing in common with Kim, Lisa only agrees to come over to meet her boyfriend Louis there. Um, yeah, it's very... You know immediately, yeah, we're in the 80s now. This is like the setup for most teens. Yeah, it's films. weird. Yeah, I mean, getting your leg over mm-hmm. um, set up. I do understand that. It's weird for them not to be friends. Yeah, yeah. And I, I found that really weird. Uh, I was unexpected. I also found Lisa's hair to be absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> She's given Bonnie Tyler. She is. She's given fingers in the plug socket. Um, <laughs> she's given Roger Stewart. It's ridiculous. She's given that one vampire from the Lost Boys with the massive blonde yeah. hair. Yeah. I mean, I was living for her hair. It's, it's ridiculous, it's, but it's, you know, yeah. the only bit of camp value we get in this oh. fucking film. Um, yeah, Kim just looks very plain because she's the boring one. It's Shawnee oh, Smith um, in a second shitty remake. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, she was in The Blob. The Blob was really good, but she was also in Carnival of Souls. Um, yeah, she gets to the house and Randy, the neighbour, shows up with his dog. Uh, and ask the girls if they want to buy some mangoes from his fruit and vegetable down the road. He shows up by saying, I'm Randy. <laughs> I sell fruit and vegetables. Want to buy some mangoes? <laughs> this is right after Lisa, because she's a bad girl, asks if they want to get stoned. Yeah. Because it's the 80s. <laughs> um, bored at waiting for Louis' arrival, uh, Lisa joins Kim and Julia in making prank calls. When it's her when it's her turn, Lisa calls Adrian Lancer a man with mental health problems who just murdered his girlfriend, uh, Robin Griffin, whilst his soundtrack music plays down the phone, uh, and it's all because she declined his marriage proposal. So, yeah, the mental illness depiction in this film is dreadful. It's yeah, absolutely, because it's not subtle like a lot of films, uh, a lot of horror films have questionable depiction of mental illness, but this, like, tells you this this guy's a psychopath because of mental health. Problems. Yeah, and it's... it's uh, The problem is it's the 80s. So in the 80s, you had to have them as, like, a serial killer. 
Yeah. You couldn't just have someone who's killing as a means to get out of an unhappy marriage or, you know, or like the original killed his wife. This one, oh, the guy's psychotic. Yeah. He has to be psychotic. He has to be over the top. He has to be, you know, more, 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 more. And it's a remake in the 80s, you know, and we know what remakes are like. You have to have more, more, more. You have to more story to it. Yeah. More. And it doesn't work. It's just because it ends up just being really insulting. I don't know. I mean, a lot of the time in the 80s, it does work. I mean, look at The Thing, um, The Blob again, you know. There's, there's a, f- a lot of good remakes. The Fly. Think, but do you think that those remakes were more, more, more? Forcing more backstory, forcing more... Maybe not the backstory, no, but they, they were more over the top than the originals. I mean, look at The Thing. Yeah, those special effects were over the top. Yeah. But, I mean, in in terms of story and storytelling, it's quite simple, the yeah. thing. And I always think that's how it works best. I, I haven't seen the original Fly, um, so I'm not sure how that compares. But I just, I found with this one, and it's an issue we probably get more in the 2000s yeah, with is. horror remakes, is. is that it feels the need to... Just cram more into it, so it, it's yeah. not just two girls prank calling. It backfires because some guys killed his wife mm-hmm. to you know get away from an unhappy marriage. It's they've called, you know, you've got the weirdo mango man who might be involved in some way because he's weirdo. Um, you've got we'll get to it, but you've got the brother shoved in there as well. Mm. You've got, oh, he's, he's not just getting out. He's not just someone who's happened to have murdered someone. He's psychotic. He's, you know, batshit crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, a nurse. it's completely unnecessary. Visions, so we have to have the visions in there. We have to have this, that and the other. And it's just a bit too much. Yeah. Um, and the death scene is very disappointing compared to, you know, the original, I'd much rather see a psycho shower ripoff scene than two people struggling from a distance in slow motion. Oh my god, it looked like they were dancing. I had absolutely no idea what was going on because the camera's outside, so we're meant to be looking like we're peering in yeah. into a window. Um, so he does it all in front of a window, so it's perfectly viable that somebody saw him and knew what he did. Yeah. Lisa decides to hang up and later calls people saying, I saw what you did and I know who you are. Before hanging up. And the first guy says, well, I hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Later, Lisa and Kim discuss Kim's love life, deciding she needs an older man who appreciates her. (laughs) Absolutely none of her fucking business, but okay. Um, They decide to call Adrian again, but Lisa, afraid to seduce him, uh, repeats the line, I saw what you did and I know who you are. Adrian, who was caught in the act when burying Robin's body, does not realise it's a prank and is determined to get rid of her. Meanwhile, Adrian's visiting brother, Stephen. Uh, now, we've got to say, uh, Adrian is played by Robert Carradine. Yes, and, Mr. Uh, McGuire's dad. Yes, Stephen uh, he is played by David Carradine, his, bro- his real-life brother, in uh, what is classed as a special appearance. <laughs> Um, there's nothing special about this appearance. <laughs> it's nothing of the sort. We've been lied to several times. Yeah, he he um, he decides. He, well, he he figures out that Adrian's done something to Robin. Adrian has a dream where a zombie version of Robin shows up at his dr- at his door. You see what I mean? It's like it's, that, it's so not necessary. Like if it, a criticism of the first film is that the Joan Crawford character probably didn't need to exist. So instead of getting rid of that, they make it a special appearance by David Carradine. Uh-huh. <laughs> Spoiler yeah. alert, who doesn't die, who's in the whole fucking oh, that's, film. That's not, yeah, that's, there's a lot to be said about that. <laughs> um, Kim, thinking that Adrian was flirting with her, calls him again later, agreeing to meet with him. <laughs> fucking idiot. Um, she's nervous to actually meet him, but she's convinced that she should drive by his house. Taking the car to his house, Adrian notices Kim and opens his front door. Kim, afraid of admitting who she is, pretends her car broke down and that she has to call for help. When Adrian lets Kim use his phone, she pretends to call someone, but then she's like, Oh, I'm at Adrian's. Why the 
fuck would you stupid. say that? So, so She's meant to be the smart girl who can't get a man. Yeah. And now she's just being dumb. Yeah, so Adrian's like, that's suspicious. And uh, he's that's like... That's weird. <laughs> he realises he never gave his name to her. She starts to get afraid of him and leaves, but forgets her purse by mistake when Stephen comes back. After she drives away, Stephen informs Adrian that he told Robin about his mental illness problems. Back at home, Louis, his open shirt, and his friends finally drop by Kim's house to pick up Lisa. But not wanting to ditch Kim, she decides not to go with him. But Kim still feels hurt for finding out that Lisa only used her for meeting friends, and Lisa soon leaves. Stephen finds out uh, that Adrian killed his girlfriend, but before he could do anything about it, Adrian knocks him out in slow motion. Yeah, with... Some unknown device. Yeah, I've got to say, um, we watched this film on YouTube and the quality was not great. Yeah, someone's recording it off the TV. Yeah, but we're kind of, yeah, kind of. But I think even if... It was good quality. I'd have absolutely no idea what was in that guy. <laughs> it looked like a Kit Kat wrapper. <laughs> no idea. Uh, he prepares to burn him with gasoline, but then he decides to silence Kim first. Like, literally just... You had a, a, a match lit. Yeah. Just drop it. It's yeah. fine. Pours gasoline over, just leaves it. And actually, i got something to do. Sorry, mate. I'll be back. After he leaves, Stephen regains consciousness and reports him to the police. Remember, Stephen reports him to the police. Stephen knows he tried to murder him. Mm-hmm. Stephen knows he's not a good person. Mm-hmm. Remember this. On his way to Kim's house, a policeman pulls Adrian over and, recognising who he is, chases him. Adrian speeds away and runs the car off the road, blowing it up, causing the police to assume he perished in the explosion. Also causing the police officer to stare at the explosion and say, Karma. But as far as they know, he's only been accused of potentially lighting his brother on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Unless he has... Uh, his, the brother did mention um, the woman's murder. I yeah, suppose he would. When, I suppose he would mention it, wouldn't he? He continues to Kim's house, and upon confronting her, she admits that she prank-called him. Interrupted by a call from Lisa informing Kim about hearing on the news that Adrian murdered his girlfriend... Kim tries to warn the police, but Adrian stops her, setting the house on fire. When Adrian attempts to kill Kim, the family dog charges into him, knocking him into the fire, allowing the girls to get outside with the help of the neighbour, Randy. Mango Man. After Kim, Mango Man and the police arrive, they witness Adrian running outside, burning alive and dying before he could hurt anyone else. One night after the incident is over, Kim receives a phone call from Stephen who says, Kim... I know who you are. You killed my brother. Causing her to scream as the film ends and we get a showboat version of Mr. Sandman over the end credits. Now, why the fuck is Stephen calling up and being all threatening with Kim when he knew his brother was a bad person who murdered someone and tried to murder him? Yeah. Because you had to have that tacked on to the end. Like, that is ridiculous. That makes absolutely no sense. It's fucking dumb. No. And, and just, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was pretty bad before that point anyway. It just made it worse. It, it makes no sense to the narrative. <clears throat> um, it also makes no sense because, I mean, were they expecting a sequel? Were they going to do a sequel? I know, yeah. With, like, what was the <laughs> with point? David Carradine in the lead role. Exactly. Like, <laughs> what what was that going to lead to? Um, like, really genuinely... So fucking boring. Genuinely, excruciatingly dull. I hated it. Um, Gary had to keep waking me up because it was (laughs) fucking dire. And I've said it time and time again, you know, two year anniversary. I spent two years saying this and I'll (laughs) say it for another 20 years. I can forgive a lot. But if you're boring, you just... I can't forgive it. I cannot forgive a boring film. It's just... It's like the whole middle act of When a Stranger Calls, but spread it out to a whole film. So you you know it's from the same director. Exactly. Um, But yeah, it's just... It really wanted to flesh out these characters, but in doing so, just made a really boring film. You you didn't need all that. It just needed to be a simple thriller. But... So so with the uh, when a stranger calls those first fifteen minutes and the last ten 
a really great cinema, mm. fantastic cinema. The middle is boring, really, really dull. The problem with this is that the exciting parts are not even close to no, the exciting parts no. of A Stranger Course. So the whole thing is just dull and dire. Yeah. So getting into cinematography, scares and soundtrack, 1965 made some really great use of shadows. Yeah, it did. Um, which they is a very tried, William Castle thing. Yeah, but they tried it in the remake as well. Did you notice yeah. how one scene was the whole... It was maybe went on a little too long, but the whole dialogue from the killer, mm-hmm. what's his name, Adrian? Yeah. Um, so the whole dialogue is seen from him in a shadow. Yeah. Which... Is okay. It's just all right. It's just I, I in, don't interesting. I genuinely, slightly. I don't have a problem with the cinematography in the remake. No. I, I think you know the Emmy win is, is deserved. They they're at least inventive, inventive with the with the shots. Um, I also didn't have a problem with most of the soundtrack. I thought the synths were good in it. Um, but I mean, scares it just lacks any sort of intensity because of that pacing. Mm. You know, you you can't you can't be scary when. When you are going at a snail's pace, but providing no substance with it. No, and I, I never... Look, it's something that both of the films struggle with, is legitimately making me think that the girls are in danger. Mm. Because there's not enough of... Particularly in the first film as well, with the weird comedy moments, and the girls never actually looking that scared it's it's really strange and then like it's the ending where she's almost strangled but then she's laughing at the next point i feel like because the um what's the word i'm looking for comedy or horror Mm. or the tone excuse me because the tone is so weird it's. I never actually feel for any of the films that anyone's in proper danger. Mm. And anyone who is in danger, I don't care about. I couldn't give two shits about his brother. Yeah. I was just like, I don't care. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think that's... I found some scenes in the original intense. Um, I think that's, you know, I think that's down to some good direction by William Castle. But yeah, the, the comedic tones do overlap a bit too much. Mm. Um... I mean, I thought the overuse of a smoke machine added some atmosphere, even though it looked fucking ridiculous. Um, but yeah, it's just a sitcom soundtrack. It, it really didn't need to be there. Um, like there, there were so many parts where it just sounded romantic. It really did. It was so weird. It was so weird. Uh, I mean, cinematography and scares at a push, I think the original... Deserves it more. I, I don't know. It's just something about William Castle and the cinematography in his films. It's just, I think it always looks so good. Um, yeah, and there's always a camp aesthetic to his yeah. films that I, I just... I, I don't want to say nostalgic because I wasn't alive during it. But harks back to a, a, a sort of classic yeah. American cinema um, that's always appreciated. Um, the soundtrack, I actually want to give to the remake... Because it wasn't trying to sound like a sitcom. Yeah, that's um, very, that's true. And, and the sympathy parts are actually very good. I enjoyed the bit where um, he was playing a guitar. Oh, don't, that was fucking awful. He <laughs> <laughs> must be a maniac. He's playing a guitar with a comb. <laughs> so, characters. Libby uh, slash Lisa, played by Andy Garrett in 1965 and Tammy Lauren in 1988. I mean, if one thing's... There's one positive about the remake. The performances are, are decent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, they're, they're very much played straight, you know, they're, they're meant to be serious roles. Whereas, I, I, it was more fun watching Andy Garrett in uh, in the original. Yeah, I, I think they all do a, a good job. Um, I think they had a little more to do in the original because they had because had all that comedy to do. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I think the characters were more fun in the original film, and I think the dynamic was better because they were friends. I found in the yeah. remake yeah. it was weird that 
to realise that they weren't actually friends. Yeah, I thought it was it was funny how horny they were in the original as well. I was like, oh, yeah, he's got a sexy voice. Sex oh. maniac. Oh, there's a swinger. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, I it's just, they're just camp. And, and uh, you know, I know we do separate character comparisons, but if we bring Kit and Kim into this as well, because yeah. it's very difficult to judge these separately because they work really well together. It's so They're I mean, always together in their scenes. Yeah, 1965 Kit was played by Sarah Lane and 1988 Shawnee Smith. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, the two of them in 1965, it is so fun, so camp. Um, to the point that even the comedic scenes, you know, you can forgive them to a certain extent because it's still enjoyable to watch. Mm. Um, I would watch the 2Ds in the sitcom, you know, making stupid phone calls. It'd be great. That would have been amazing. So yeah. a sitcom and then just prank calling for about half an hour. Yeah. That would have been great. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is played more serious in 1988. Kind of puts it at a disadvantage because, especially because they're not very interesting. No, they, um, they haven't got much to do. And let's not pretend that they get massive amounts of character development no um again like any true 80s film there's always got to be the nerdy one and the really cool one who has a boyfriend and he wants to get stoned yeah um but other than that they don't go too in depth yeah so i think our winners are definitely 1965 for that the hair was better as well it's true it's true um (laughs) Tess slash Julia, played by Cheryl Luck in 1965 and Candice Cameron Bruce in 1988. Um, I'm not going to lie, fucking Tess in 1965 is fucking annoying. She's really annoying. <laughs> She's thick as pig shit. She's so dumb. I mean... She's so dumb. You had to sympathise her a little bit. I mean, it was like every five minutes, um, Libby was like, oh, you're a fucking twat. <laughs> like, she fucking hated her so much. She was. Like, you have no fucking brain, prick. She hated her. But she had enough of her shit. I mean, so did <laughs> we by the end of the film. Imagine living true. with it. Um, Candice Cameron Bruce, she looks like a real housewife these days. Have you seen her IMDb picture? Uh, I have. Slaying the game. Is she the one that... Uh, paid off the university for her daughter. Is she? Well, it happened to Felicity Huffman, well, didn't it? I, I know she was in Fuller House, wasn't she? So she, she was in Full House back in the day. Yeah. Um, she was in some kind of Wonderful as well. Yeah, she Do was. Do you remember yeah. that? that was, yeah. I love that film. So I assume she was a... Yeah, so she would have been a kid in that as well. Uh, yeah, she would have been fairly young. Um, I hope I'm not... It may have been someone else, but I swear someone from um, Fuller House. Oh, uh, it wasn't her. No, excuse me. I mean, she was a Republican. Oh, was she really? <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> so the winner is Cheryl Locke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she may have been annoying, but you know. Other reasons, and uh, and also at least she had a bit of personality. So Steve slash Adrian, played in nineteen sixty five by John Ireland, and nineteen eighty eight by Robert Carradine. Oh, it's I mean John Ireland. He was definitely trying to do a bit of uh, Night of the Hunter, weren't he? Yes, that was absolutely what he was going for, and and I'm absolutely fine with that. Um, was he as as good as uh, what's his face Robert in, as Robert Mitchum? No, no, of course no. not. But he, he didn't have that much to do. No, really. I find him more menacing than Robert Carradine. I just got annoyed with Robert Carradine by the end of the fucking film. It's just I was sick of seeing him, and it, and again, you know, the character definitely nineteen sixty five wins because. It's just, it's just really shit and it's, careless. Yeah, it's not insulting. Mental to health. Me or it you know? was just. It, what was the point? Like, what did yeah. that add to the it, film? Nothing. I mean, you know, it I might prefer have been no nothing. Wife and an insurance job yeah. or something. You know what was? It was absolutely pointless. Yeah. Um, but I mean, going from that to Lizzie McGuire's <laughs> dad. I mean, that's range for Robert Carradine. So you have to himself. give credit where it's due. Yeah. 
But the winner is John Ireland, and the overall winner of this month's original versus remake is, of course, the original 1965 version. We apologise to everybody who voted on the polls. <laughs> I, it was, uh, yeah, I just, sorry, I found the remake to be utterly boring. Yeah. Watching them back to back, I just like, oh no, this is just dire, dull, yeah. dull. So yes, we recommend watching the 1965, I Saw What You Did, and any other William Castle films that isn't Project X. Yes. Um, but yes, so uh, that brings us to our best and worst of the month. Ooh. Do you want to go first? Um, Probably going to be exactly. I think same. they're going to be exactly the same. So my favourite film of the month is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Yes, that is sick. And, you know... I'm not renowned for being a Marvel fanboy, but I love that film so much. I thoroughly enjoyed that film. It was so entertaining. The characters were so likeable um, that I just, yeah, I just had so much fun watching it. Yeah, um, well I, I am a Marvel fanboy and I completely agree. Yes. Uh, it's top five MCU for me and... It's uh, a top five of the year as well. I mean, it's just everything you could want. I mean, they you know they nail the Chinese culture. Um, it is a, a film for new characters that don't heavily rely on older characters. No, um, the fight scenes were thrilling. Yeah. Oh, cinematography is some of the best. Yeah. Yeah. Really, just fantastic. Yeah. Loved it. Worst of the month. Is an average of the month, well, slightly below average. Um, it isn't bottom of the barrel, but it is respect. It is respect. Um, I didn't like the film too much. Um, I personally thought that the film was so involved in having cinematic moments, mm. which were wonderful, and Jennifer Hudson can fucking sing a song and she did more than justice to Aretha Franklin's legacy. Yeah. But I found that the film was so consumed with having those moments, it never really fully dealt with any of the actual emotions or the actual cinematic experience of going through Aretha Franklin's story and knowing who Aretha Franklin was and knowing how what happened to her in her life affected her as a person. You had lovely moments in the film of her performing full songs, and they are full songs, um, that it lacked anything else. Yeah, and I, it's a two-and-a-half-hour film, mm. but I, I turn to you like 10 minutes in and said, does this film have somewhere to be? Yeah. Like, it, I've never known a biopic to rush as much as that. Like, it was, here's what happened, move on. Here's what happened, move on. And when some of the things that happened involve child abuse, that's a little careless when you're just going to throw that out there and not deal with it and move to something that would benefit a theatrical film more. Yeah. You know, that's, that's not great filmmaking. No. Um, you know, I mean, performances were... Uh, Good. I, again, you know, Jennifer Hudson was fantastic. But, I mean, the ending, you know, it ends with title cards telling you what happened throughout the rest of Aretha Franklin's life after a certain point. It's like, well, could you not doubt with those in the film? Could you not add an extra half hour onto the film? Made it three hours? You know, it's... Yeah, it, it was, wasn't great at all. Honourable mentions... We've got loads this month. Yeah, we've it's seen been a lot a of good, good stuff. Month. Uh, Ricky O, the story of Ricky. Yeah, love that film. I'm so batshit crazy over the top. Yeah, all so the colours of the dark. Yeah, brilliant yellow. Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. Another brilliant yellow. Uh, Nightbox, completely out of nowhere. Yeah, we've we, never heard of it. We'd literally just watched this because Churches did a cover of Cry Little Sister for it. Um... But I, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, that is how you do a family-friendly horror film that benefits both kids and adults. Mm-hmm. It is like a, a child version of Evil Dead. You could definitely tell Sam Raimi was involved with it, which isn't always the case when he produces a film. No, no. Um, I, I thought it was great. I, 
I thought I mean, we say this, we throw this phrase out a lot, but a um, introduction to horror. Yeah. A good intro film to horror with lots of horror elements, but obviously not too R-rated for children. No, and uh, Netflix's Jessica Jones, um, Kristen Ritter, I think so. Top of my head. She's camp, gives a camp performance in it as well. She is. She is yeah, she's channeling her uh, inner Angelica Houston. Yeah. Um, Basket Case Trilogy. Yeah. That's so, so good. So much better than I was expecting. Uh, Seeding of a Ghost. Yeah, crazy film from Hong Kong, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, Starship Troopers. Oh, yeah. I watched Wizard of Oz for the first time. Pa- um, pause for shock. Yeah. V-I-Y, is that how you say it? Or Vi? Vi. Vi, that was good. Uh, Annette. Yeah, baby Annette, she is the moment. Yeah, gay icon. Um, and I'm going to leave off my last one for a few minutes. And I'll tell you what it is. Oh, the suspense of it all. Oh. Um, so, on social media, I'm DeadLightGaz92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, GazCruise92 on Twitter. I'm ChrisBarker823 on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. And uh, rate, review, subscribe. If you listen on iTunes, like and follow on everything else. Check out our YouTube, our Spotify playlist with all our uh, trash film bangers on it. Um, Quick question. Yeah. I know it's not your last choice for um, Finger Me Bob. He's he sure? Yeah, honourable mention. The Sadness. Have we mentioned that? That was August. Well, it was August, but we didn't mention it on oh, the Oh, yeah, we, we did mention it. We did. We mentioned did we? it on our Ninja Terminator episode because it was part of Fright Fest and we said we'd probably go more in depth. Oh, I see. On our best of the year. Oh, I see. Yes, the sadness as well. Check it out. It's at Grimfest in Manchester, so if you could get a ticket to that, we highly recommend going to see the sadness. Can I give some of my honourable mentions? Go for it, go for it. I thought we'd have the same. We're a little out of order. I thought we'd have the same. Well, I watched uh, Beat Girl for the first time. That was a wonder... uh, Mine's less horror culture chivalry. Beat Girl, do you remember? I do... Yeah, I did really enjoy Beat Girl. I don't know why it's not on mine. Really great... uh, uh, Would you call it Britsploitation? Yeah. Um, so from the early 60s, uh, we watched The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, yeah, uh, which is an absolute batshit crazy musical. I don't, it's one of those films you're like, how did this get made? It's a musical based on a, a brothel, a true, yeah. true story. It's a, But Dolly Parton is this brothel madam. Well, yeah, I mean, the biggest miracle is the fact that it's a sex positive film released in the 80s. So weird. So weird. Um, Gary watched Shirley Valentine for the first time. Talking about Brits. Yeah. Brit films. I, I really enjoyed it. I gave it a nine. But it's one of those films where I wasn't going to mention it because it's... I don't know. I I feel like everyone's already seen it. No, I don't think... I don't <laughs> think our audience have seen Shirley Valentine. Put it on a, on a Sunday afternoon on ITV. Men- but then you mentioned Wiz- Wiz- that's watching true. Wizard of that's Oz true. for the first time. That's true. You're the only person on the planet who hasn't watched it. Shame my listeners that haven't listened to Wizard of Oz, don't you? <laughs> well, I think you need to watch Wizard of Oz. If you haven't watched it, you need to watch it. So much of cinema has been directly influenced by that film. It's true. It's, 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 and that's not me being over the top. It's the truth of the matter. Okay, have you yes. had your moment? Now? Yes, I've had my moment. Cool. Thank you. Tuesday, we are releasing our episode on Hallinger, the Hellraiser ripoff, to tie in with... Our screening of Hellraiser. This is uh, last call for tickets. Thursday, Chapter Pit Trials in Manchester, seven o'clock, um, uh, three o'clock. If you want to do the Dead by Daylight gaming session, uh, but we are hosting the screening of Hellraiser, and we are very excited. Really, really excited. It's a film, and it sounds really wanky, but it's a film that deserves to be seen on the big screen. It does. It does. Um, but yes. And then. For uh, a very special announcement, we have our Halloween schedule. So, Friday, a week today, we will be releasing an episode talking about what I think is the greatest film ever made, Halloween 2. And Halloween (laughs) 2. 
And this starts our Michael Myers through the year season. So each week we'll be bringing you different films in the Halloween franchise. Apart from three because we have already discussed that. Uh, head back to last year. Uh, if you want to listen to it. Uh, so we'll be discussing Halloween 1 and 2 on Friday. On the Tuesday after it will be 4, 5 and 6. Then H2O and Resurrection. Then the Rob Zombie films. And then... We're bringing you right up to date with Halloween 2018 and Halloween Kills. Yeah, it's going to be good. Jam-packed. <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> Jam-packed. What? Halloween Curse of Michael Myers. Um, well, <laughs> do you know what? It's going to be fun to talk about yeah. it and to make fun of it. But next week is our um, double bill of... Who's... I always forget his name. Who's the one that gets hit by the... Ben Tramer. Ben Tramer. It's a Ben Tramer double bill. The second film we're discussing on the podcast that starts with Mr. Sandman and ends with a killer on fire. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Then next month's Original Verse remake, we'll be discussing another Joan Crawford classic. Yeah, another Joan Crawford film remade as a TV movie. Yeah. Um, It's... I'll announce this one. It's Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And I know what you're all thinking. Who the fuck remade that? <laughs> um, it was in the lead roles, Lynn Redgrave and Vanessa Redgrave. Yes. I am so excited to watch that remake. It's going to be good. Famous last words. This might be the one where we're like, five star original, five star <laughs> remake. Let's not get too This excited. is the one. This is the one. <laughs> Uh, and then, for my last honourable mention, and I believe an honourable mention of yours, and for our Halloween bonus episode, we will be discussing the biggest talking point in the horror community right now, Malignant. Yes. And, um, because it's a Halloween bonus episode, I don't just want to give you a boring-ass normal episode, we're going to talk about the influences as well. Yeah. Or at least what we take from the film because for anyone who hasn't seen it the least said about it the better but also it's very influence heavy like it like a tarantino film um it uses its influences to its advantage it has divided yeah the online film community it has divided there is a civil war going (laughs) on about malignant and we are very much on the side that says it's a modern day classic. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, so that's our exciting schedule for next month. It's a full one, so I hope you're ready. And before we kick it off, we'll see you on Tuesday. Bye.